everyone to episode 39 of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Today we want to welcome to the podcast distinguished professor in the biology department of Tufts University in Boston, Professor Michael Levin. Michael received a dual bachelor degree in computer science and in biology from Tufts. He completed his PhD at Harvard University in the field of genetics, where he characterized the molecular genetic mechanism of embryologic left-right asymmetry. His PhD research was recognized by the journal Nature as a milestone in developmental biology in the last century. His postdoctoral training also took place at Harvard and was in the field of molecular embryology. Next to his current role as a primary investigator, Michael is also director at Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University and director at Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology. Hope you're going to enjoy the episode. And uh, here is our conversation with Michael. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. And um, I, I w- I'd like to open with the with the question um, about your uh, your history. Could you give us an overview and the history of a professional background? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be on. Um, my background is that uh, I was uh, interested in in the computer science from a very early age. Um, I did some software, uh, some software and scientific programming. I went to college at Tufts. I did uh, two bachelor's degrees, one in biology, one in computer science, and uh, then a PhD in genetics at Harvard Medical School. Um, I did a postdoc after that in the cell biology department at Harvard Medical School as well. And uh, yeah, then I started my own lab after that, and that was at Forsyth Institute. Uh, and uh, around 2009, I moved the lab over to Tufts. And that's where I am now in the biology department at Tufts University. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and speaking about your lab and you being a, a primary investigator now, can you can you enlighten us about what are the main research direction your group is currently pursuing? So we do a, a wide range of different things at the intersection of developmental biology, computer science and cognitive science. So we are interested in how in, in intelligence broadly in various embodiments. So those might be natural evolved systems like cells, tissues, and, and whole organisms. It might be uh, novel bioengineered systems like uh, hybrids or other closed loop types of um, uh, biologicals. Uh, or even even software. So we do some work in machine learning. And so so all of this has to do with how different types of parts come together to form larger scale uh, goal directed systems for uh, that operate in different spaces. So maybe anatomical morphous space in the case of regeneration and development or physiological space or transcriptional space. And um, so we are we're doing a lot of basic work on uh, the conceptual side to understand what it means for uh, collective intelligence is to be solving problems in these spaces and in the practical applications. And then the lab is uh, about three quarters of biology, you know, um, a wet lab and about a quarter computational. And uh, applications of this work are we 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 have applications in uh, in repairing birth defects, in inducing regeneration after injury and damage, in uh, cancer normalization, uh, produ- uh, producing novel uh, uh, synthetic living machines, and uh, things like that. Quite uh, interesting. Um, yeah, you have your hand or fingers in a lot of uh, in a lot of areas, uh, but. It- maybe the one thing you're well known for is you created a flatworm with four heads a frog with six legs a tadpole with a third functioning eye on its tail can you maybe explain to our audience how was this all possible 
Sure. Um, yeah, the you know the the, the creation of all these different uh, unusual biologicals are in in trying to test our various ideas of how anatomical shape is directed in the first place. So one of the one of the important things to realize is that pretty much all biomedical needs would be handled if we knew the answer to one thing how it is that cells work together to build specific structures right so so birth defects uh, injury aging degenerative disease cancer all of these things would be solved if we knew how to communicate to cells what it is that they should be building and so we have uh, various kinds of uh, theories about that and uh, in order to test those we uh give different kinds of uh, signals and we modify the experiences of uh, cells and tissues and we uh, try to make computational models that predict the outcome so that we can learn to make different organs and, and synthetic living um, machines and so on. And so in the cases that you're talking about, actually, that, that, that's a few different things. You, you mentioned a few different projects. One project was uh, had to do with placing an eye on the tail of a tadpole. And that tadpole didn't have three eyes. It had just the one on the tail mm -hmm. because we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to see if uh, the animal, uh, with the degree of plasticity, right? We're, we're very interested in plasticity and how biology can make coherent structures and functions in new configurations that uh, that haven't existed before, right? Without long uh, long periods of time for for uh, adaptation. So we were with, there's like a, there's a few different ways you can you can put eyes in other places on a tadpole. You can do it surgically by putting the eye primordia cells there, and most of the work was done that way. But we also showed in a different project that by controlling the bioelectrical signals that normally tell. Uh, different tissues where they should be. You can you can produce that signal other places, and you can make an eye. Make, the cells will make an eye somewhere else. So so it, so in that project, we found that the animals with eyes on their tails could see quite well, uh, and this was kind of an amazing example of of plasticity because those eyes not only can form correctly in a weird location surrounded by muscle instead of their normal tissues in the head, but they make an optic nerve that can connect to the spinal cord and the brain. Can, uh, is, is, is perfectly well able to take information that's coming from a completely unusual location and use that as visual data and learn to learn in visual assays. So that was, that was the tadpole example. And then uh, you mentioned the, um, the, the, the flatworm. So the thing about flatworms is that they regenerate when you cut them into pieces, each piece regenerates to a correct shape and then it stops. And this is a major question in developmental biology is how do uh, pieces of tissue know what shape they should be and how do they direct growth and how do they know when to stop. So we started studying that process. We um, uncovered a, uh, uh, an electrical network that basically stores information about how many heads the uh, animal is supposed to have and where do they go. And we found out that uh, you, can, you can change that information. And once you change it, if the animal is injured later, the uh, the cells will actually build to whatever the new set point is. So if we change the uh, the memory in that electrical circuit to say two heads instead of one, then uh, after injury the cells will will build uh, two headed worms. And then uh, what was the sorry I forgot what was the third example? Uh, the frog with six legs. Oh, the frog with the extra legs. Yeah. So 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 that was that was part of our work to understand again what are some of the bioelectric uh, subroutine calls basically the triggers that uh, call up different uh, different types of um, different types of organ modules, and we used uh, we, we used a couple of techniques, uh, either either injection of ion channel RNA or optogenetics using uh, light sensitive ion channels 
to uh, to induce uh, new new leg growth, and then it's the same kind of the same kind of technique we've we've been using to induce a repair of and regeneration of legs in that system. Yeah, you talk a lot about um, altering the bioelectrical signal. Maybe what does that mean? Well, what happens is, I mean, if you think about um, the the most the most fundamental aspect of let's let's say t- take development or regeneration, the most fundamental aspect is that all of these cells cooperate towards a specific large scale goal. So, let's say you have a salamander and the limb is amputated; those cells will cooperate towards building a new a new limb, and then they stop when that limb is complete. So if we ask the question, what kind of mechanism is able to scale the local homeostatic behaviors of individual cells into a much larger scale goal, like making a limb? And um, uh, if, we, if, we, if you sort of think about what, what mechanisms do we know that's able to do that kind of scaling, the most obvious happens in the brain. So individual neurons uh, are cells that connect together, and in some way that gives rise to a new emergent individual, like a human or a rat or something else that is able to store and pursue very large scale goals, goals that belong to the animal, but not to any of the individual cells. So that trick of using bioelectrical networks to scale goal directed activity is not something that's new to um, uh, to, to brains or nervous systems. It, it actually was discovered by evolution very long ago, but around the time of bacterial biofilms. And all cells in the body do the kinds of things that neurons do just much more slowly. So all cells in the body have ion channels like neurons. Most cells have uh, gap junctions that allow them to communicate with each other and form these electrical networks. And whereas the brain uses these networks to think about movement in three-dimensional space, your other uh, body tissues exploit electrical networks to move the configuration of the body through morphous space. So the shape of the space of possible anatomical configurations. So all of the, these cells are using ion channels and gap junctions to, uh, to drive computations that, that scale um, that activity towards some kind of outcome. And we've developed uh, some of the first techniques to be able to manipulate that process. So we can, uh, and then this, we, we, we don't do anything, um, we, we don't do anything with, with electrodes or electromagnetic stimulation or, or, or applied fields or anything like that. We uh, use all the tools of neuroscience just outside of the nervous system largely to target the native machinery by which cells communicate. So these ion channels, yeah, we can open yeah. them, we can close them, we can use optogenetics, we can use drugs, we can put in new channels, we can knock down channels. And the idea is to take, uh, to, to, to make computational models so that we can understand how the network is processing information and then use that model to guide a choice of intervention. So we can say, okay, if this animal is going to have a particular kind of birth defect, how do we, what, what kind of uh, change do we need to make to fix the bioelectric pre-pattern, the distribution of voltages through across the cells? How do we fix that pattern so that it specifies the correct structure? And so for example, we've shown that um, in, in uh, brain uh, with, with birth defects of the brain and with, with tumors and so on that if you if you understand something about how the voltage patterns are normally guiding anatomy you can manipulate those patterns and execute repair yeah it's um it's a really unique way of uh looking at it because like in biology we always learn that genetics is mainly the main thing that drives a lot of uh, what the cell will do so like how would you rank bio bioelectricity versus genomics in dictating cell processes 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, there are two ways to look at it, uh, kind of a more practical way and then a more philosophical way. So let's just talk about that for a second. Um, on the on the one hand, uh, we can we can ask. Uh, there's there's kind of a, a hardware software distinction. So from a from from one perspective, genetics of course is essential because genetics uh, specifies all of the hardware that every cell gets to have. Right, so the, all the ion channels, the signaling proteins, everything else is specified in the genome. So if you don't have that, you're, you are not going to have anything. And we understand that hardware is very important. However, one thing that we've learned uh, from, from cybernetics and from computer science and, and so on is that uh, once you've got your hardware, some kinds of hardware are capable of lots of really interesting behavior in software. You think about it as, as, as physiology, for example. So um, it's uh it's 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 really really important to to realize that that actually those are not uh those are not mutually exclusive you know when you have a computer you don't ask which is more important the software or the hardware you, they're both important and they both have uh they are both different ways to relate to the to the uh to the device and to understand what it's doing and to get some use out of it so um now now more specifically uh the thing the thing is that in in any kind of development or or uh regeneration or whatever all different modalities are being used. So it's never just bioelectricity. It's always a combination of bioelectrics, biochemical signaling, right? So transcriptional networks, all of that, biomechanical signals, who knows what else, ultra-weak photons, oxygen gradients is a million mm, different things. Yeah. So so all of this, all of this is very deeply connected. And I, I you know, I, I think that this, the the one question that that um one can ask about all of this is which layer provides the best control knobs? Right. So that so that, yes, all of these layers are functional and important and they all interact with each other. But where can we get the most bang for our buck? In particular, what's the least amount of effort you can make for certain interventions to cause the most amount of outcomes in, in, in molecular biology? This 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 idea was uh, is kind of thought of before as um, kind of master regulator genes and, and things like that. Right. So so in our experience, uh, pretty much every time that we've compared these kinds of things, it turns out that bioelectrics is a much more convenient, much more tractable, high level control layer where you can make very, uh, very simple um, interventions and it percolates down and activates very complex downstream gene expression cascades and cell movements and everything else to give you outcomes that would be very hard to duplicate in uh, in, in, the, in the molecular biological layer. Um, I give you a, a, another example. If uh, back to the eye, you know, we, we, we are taught that uh, only the anterior neurectoderm is competent to become eye because with, if you misexpress the, 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 master, um, the master regulator uh, eye gene, PAC6, in frog, only, the, only the, the anterior of the head is competent to make ectopic eyes. But with bioelectrics, you can make those eyes anywhere. You can make them on the tail, in the gut, you can make them anywhere. So, so in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a higher, um, higher level of control that gives, you more, that gives you more power. Also, the other thing about um, bioelectrics is that it, because it's often a high level uh, mechanism for making decisions. Once you once you do that, it activates all kinds of downstream properties that otherwise you would have to do your you would have to take care of yourself. So, for example, in planaria, you can use a molecular uh, technique um, uh, targeting a, uh, targeting some wind signaling to induce a secondary head. But that secondary head may be 
out of scale to the rest of the body because what you've produced you you've specified that you need a head but you haven't actually gone in and, and taken care of the details of getting the scaling correct whereas if you change the bioelectric circuit and you tell those cells that actually a good planarian is supposed to have two heads everything else is downstream of that so they will the body will take care of the scaling the the, the organ identity everything else so for regenerative medicine uh, we think that bioelectrics is very convenient because it's often how the tissue makes decisions. For example, am I going to scar? We're going to regenerate. What are we going to do? And like in, in, in planaria during the first, after, after injury, during the first three to six hours, the bioelectrics makes a decision about what's going to happen there. And then 18 to 24 hours after that, you start to see a differential gene expression, redistribution of morphogens, all that stuff. So I'm not saying that's always how it is. I'm sure there will be cases where something else is a better driver, let's say a biomechanical stimulus or a master gene, who knows? There, I'm, I'm sure there are other cases, but all the cases that we've looked at, um, evolution really exploits bioelectricity for that top level control. Yeah. I think Tom, like jump out of genetics after this, I think once you got your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> No, I well, it's not the first time we have a guest who uh, <laughs> says that genetics is not everything. So I'm not surprised anymore listening <laughs> to this. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the philosophical because right now I would like to pivot the conversation towards um, your article that I think was published last month in the Frontiers in Systems Neuroscience, the technological approach to mind everywhere. Uh, so I actually have it right in front of me. And as I was reading to it a um, couple of times, it kind of went over my head. And as far as I understand, this is kind of a, a hot pot of the philosophy of mind and how we can use science to explain cognition. But yeah, because I couldn't really get into the details of it, um, I would like you to maybe talk a little bit about what did you mean when you have written that paper and what was on your mind when you were writing that paper? Yeah, this is uh, that 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 paper is is the is the second or third in a series, and there's there's way you know many many more um, coming and all, all kinds of other other papers in in my efforts to understand the scaling problem. And what I mean by the scaling problem is simply this: each of us, you know, we like to think that we are a centralized advanced intelligence with a first person perspective. We have goals, memories, hopes, and dreams, and so on. Um, and in fact, in fact, some people make claims like, okay, I have a real, uh, you know, intelligence or sentience and I'm not a machine and things, you know, people say this kind of stuff all the time. But if you think about where you came from, both evolutionarily and developmentally, at one point you were a bag of, of chemicals. You were a unfertilized egg that somebody could look at that and say, that is a uh, that is a piece of physics. It's a it's a it's a it's a chemical machine, uh, and people will often say, "I don't believe that that has uh, any you know pick pick a cognitive term right uh, go goal directedness memory sentience whatever you're going to mm-hmm. say." Uh, and then nine months and a few years after that, you've got a a, a, a different uh, creature who's human and who's going to say things about their own inner perspective, who has metacognition and second order reasoning and and planning and all these things. That journey that we took across that Cartesian cut from, from a collection of chemicals to a, uh, a truly intelligent system, whatever, whatever it is that we are, right? That journey was smooth. It was continuous. There was never a lightning bolt at the day, you know, 59 of development that boom, at this point, now you're a true cognitive system. And before that, you were just chemistry. That, that never happens. Yeah. And, so, and so the biggest sort of the biggest mystery of 
uh, of, of life and science, uh, I think, that faces this is understanding the scaling problem. How is it that you start with very simple goal-directed um, homeostatic units, let's say cells, or even before that with least action kinds of models, you can, you can look at um, an active inference and even in molecular networks. Uh, how is it that you get from that to a complex intelligence and, and, and you get there slowly. It, 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 um, you know, it, it, uh, there, there's never, there's never a cliff. Uh, you know, we can talk about, um, different kinds of, uh, phase transitions and so on, but, the, but, the, but the changes are always, always slow and steady. And so that's scaling problem. So, so this, this paper that you're looking at is my attempt to, uh, say something about that problem and which, which, it requires a couple of things, which I, I tried to do in that paper and I develop more in, in, in other papers. First is to lay down a set of philosophical um, approaches to say, here's what I think is the right way to start, right? And some people will agree and some people will disagree, but you have to, I think it's very important to lay out your, your philosophical um, uh, axioms out first. Okay, what are the things you, you think of as, well, what are we gonna start with? So I lay out a few of those. And, uh, and so, and we can talk about what those are. Uh, so that's the first thing to do. And then the second thing to do is to uh, try to uh, propose a framework that is going to help us think about this problem in different embodiments. And I think it's, that's, that's very important. It, I, when I talk about intelligence, I talk about diverse intelligences. So that means taking, be, taking seriously the fact that here on earth, everything we have here is an N of one, right? This is an N of one journey through through phylo, you know, through um, a phylogenetic tree, and trying to make conclusions based on that is like uh, testing your model with the same data that generated the model, right? It's it's um it's it's very limited what you can say from just observing standard standard model species. So that means we need to understand what do all different kinds of intelligences have in common. So all the different kinds of intelligence we see on Earth including things we call collective intelligence, like ant, like ant colonies. And so, I mean, we are all collective intelligences, right? We are all bags of neurons. So every, every, every intelligence is a collective intelligence, uh, including, including bioengineered things that are novel life forms that are created in, in labs, including software agents, robotics, possible exobiological agents. What, what do all of these things have in common? What does it mean to be a, uh, to be an active agent? And so, and so I, I put forward a, a set of, a set of definitions and a way that I propose to think about all of that. And then the third important ingredient is examples. So if I say that I have an answer to uh, a possible answer to how intelligence and cognition are scaled, I have to show examples of how that happens. And I do that through developmental biology and in particular bioelectricity, because I think that's at least here on earth, that's what evolution chose to do that, to scale intelligence via bioelectricity. So if you want to dig in, we can talk about those three different you know, pieces, but that's, that's what I tried to do in that paper. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do this. Cause I, I, I have one question uh, to ask you here right now, cause in this, you, you also talk about uh, cognition um, so if, when you when you define when you put it forward the definition of cognition would that definition change would have to be changed depending on what level you're talking whether it's a single cell level description of cognition or whether it's a it's a someone like human when you try to describe cognition or are you still trying to look for one definition that would suit all forms of cognition at every level what i proposed is a spectrum and I think it has to be a spectrum because, because binary categories don't work. So if you say, 
I have true cognition, but this thing is just uh, chemistry. I will walk you backwards hour by hour until we get to the point where you're an egg. And you can tell me where you became, uh, you know, from, from just machine to, right? I mean, it, there's ne it, it never works. So these binary categories never work. So, um, so what I propose is a spectrum. And in particular, I, I call it a spectrum of persuadability. And what I mean by that is that I take claims about cognition they should be continuous meaning don't don't try to don't try to ask whether something has cognition or not the question is how much and what kind so if you're talking about human cognition you can tell me that humans are capable of long-term planning and 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 all these other you know all these other things that humans do and if we're talking about paramecium cognition great we can talk about what it is that paramecia can do maybe maybe habituation maybe sensitization maybe other things that uh, that that they're able to do, uh, and and by the way, solving problems in all kinds of spaces that are not just three dimensional space. Yeah, we, you know, so so cognition. So to me, cognition is a spectrum, and when you make a claim about the cognition of some system, you're doing two things. First of all, you're really making an engineering claim, right? I I take all of this stuff, and this is part of like my my background philosophy on all this. I, I don't want to have feelings about things in terms of. I don't believe that thermostats should have uh, goals and that's it. That's, you know, that's what I believe. I, I think these should all be empirical questions. You, when you, when you make a claim about the cognition of something, what you're really saying is it's an engineering claim. You're really saying, here are the ways in which I think you can control and understand that system. So if you tell me that a system has enough uh, cognitive capacity to be, uh, for example, trained with rewards and punishments, that is a testable empirical claim. Well, let's find out. Right. So if you're doing that with a rock, we're going to find out that you're probably wrong. If we are doing that with a mouse, we're going to find out that you're probably right. And in between, if you say to me, um, what about a cell? I'll say, let's find out. Right. If I if you if I if you say I don't believe that uh, that a network of, of chemicals has has uh, sufficient um, uh, cognition to be able to learn anything. Well, that's uh, that that's an empirical question. And in fact, we we put out a, and other people have too have actually shown that uh, gene regulatory networks can show six different kinds of learning. And that's so they're just they're just gene regulatory networks. So you can't guess these. So my point is, you can't guess these things. You can't have feelings about them there. This is science. You have to you have to make specific claims. And what are the what are the claims about? The claims are about engineering. Uh, how do you relate to the system? I can train it or I can rewire the set point if it's like a homeostatic system, or if it's really clever, I can, um, uh, you know, I can communicate with it, uh, many different things, right? All the way from, from inanimate uh, matter, all the way up through humans and beyond. So, so, that's, so that's the first thing you're doing. The second thing you're doing when you're making a cognition claim is that you're taking an IQ test yourself because, because what you're really, all of this is observer dependent. So what you're really saying is, if you tell me that I believe this system has cognition of level 17, whatever our, our you know, continuum is gonna be, what that means is that's how smart you are, that's what you've noticed. That doesn't mean that a better observer wouldn't have realized that, oh, wow, the system is actually doing much more clever things. You just never noticed it, right? So, so that happens all the time. And I think people who work in animal uh, behavior, um, this is, this is probably uh, lesson one that you're, you know, you learned humility in the, right at the beginning, because you have, you may have no idea what the system is doing. And if you think it's only capable of X or Y, that may say more about you than it says about the system. And all we can do is make hypotheses and test them and then find out who's, you know, who's got a better, who's got a better system. So if someone's, you know, if someone has a, a human brain and says, boy, this is a fantastic paperweight. Well, they're right. And it has, a, that, that's a, that's a use of, you know, that's, that's a model of it. That's uh, got very little, um, 
cognitive capacity, but they're but they're missing all the important stuff because right because you could actually in the right context it has a lot more intelligence than that. So that happens all the time when we when we misunderstand and and um, kind of uh, uh, we're, we're, we we guess too low on the intelligence of all these a lot of systems because we're not used to it. We are you know think about it all your all your sense organs point outward. And so we are very good at recognizing agency of medium size objects we're going at medium speeds in the three dimensional world. So you see octopus or you see a, you know, a rat or a squirrel or a monkey and you see it doing things. You say, ah, I recognize that's agency. That's not a bowling ball. That's not a bowling ball. That thing has, has, has um, preferences and hopes and memories and whatever. Well, imagine, imagine that you are born with a sense of uh, your, your blood chemistry like you could feel what's in your blood and also you could feel what your pancreas was doing at any moment to help you like deal with the day's events. I think you would have a very nice mental image of what intelligence in physiological space looks like. And you would think that your organs have some degree of, of intelligence in that space. And we don't, we, we're just not any good at it because, because we're not used to thinking about that um, and, and about these unusual systems. So, so that's what I, that's what I think about cognition is that it's a spectrum and you have to find the optimal place for any system you can't just guess you have to do experiments because sometimes we get surprised and you have to be humble about the fact that uh it's all observer dependent and whatever you think you may have not figured out what that system is actually you know doing something much more clever mm, yeah thank you for explaining this and uh, i know evan has an urgent question so i'll <laughs> hand over <laughs> fine no it's it's fascinating and it's something that we don't really think about at all and it's it's hard to really think about because yeah we are biased in what we observe as as intelligent so uh yeah i will move on to regenerative medicine um so we just wanted to mention you published a pe uh, recent paper in the field of limb limb regeneration um so yeah maybe if you wanted to uh say what are the most significant developments in the field of limb limb regeneration but also maybe some of the biggest unknowns yeah um well I mean, there, there are many, many interesting unknowns as far as, uh, for example, uh, why it is that certain animals are so good at it and other animals are not uh, good at it. Um, although we can, we can take some guesses, but we really don't know. Uh, and in particular, there are all kinds of questions about what actually, what actually is needed to, um, uh, to induce something as complex as, as limb regeneration, you know, do you need to micromanage the process by uh, turning on and off a, a large set of genes and then 3D printing a bunch of stem cells in particular locations? Or is it sufficient to figure out some sort of master regulator that convinces the cells to rebuild? And so our, our work on this, and it started uh, well over, uh, I don't know, about 12 or 13 years ago, actually, uh, looking at uh, a tail regeneration in, in tadpoles and trying to understand how uh, tails do, how um, uh, tadpoles do or do not regenerate their tails. And then moving from that to young froglets, and then after that, adult frogs. And just taking all that work together, we've learned a few, a few important things. One thing we've learned, so frogs, unlike salamanders, you know, they, they do have regenerative stages, but, but as adults, they don't regenerate their legs. And we learned a few things. We learned, number one, that animals that do not regenerate their legs normally can be made to regenerate their legs. So that's, that's an important question that was not known before. Can, can that even happen? And the, the answer is yes, it can. So that's the first, the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that we kind of validated this, this idea of controlling at the very high level of control because 
we in so so we interacted with the with the wound for 24 hours we put on this wearable bioreactor that contained some drugs in a silk gel that was made by david kaplan's group who we worked very close with and uh that was it 24 hour application after that you leave the animal alone you get 18 months of leg growth you don't touch it during that point you don't need to do anything because this is not about micromanaging the process we we don't know how to build a leg we have no idea how to uh how to how to um you know, uh, put everything where it needs to go. Luckily, we don't need to because that information is already there. The the the, uh, the 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 software of that animal already knows how to do it. We need to find the triggers, and we found some some interesting triggers. One cool thing about that. So 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 the second amazing thing about that was that yeah, twenty four hours is enough to kickstart that whole process, whereby you don't need to do anything else. The third sort of amazing thing was that uh, the information that you give during those twenty four hours is extremely simple. We didn't micro pattern it. We didn't try to control the spatial delivery very much. We didn't give all, you know, anything remotely like the information that it takes to specify a whole limb. In fact, the information that we used in prior work to make a limb is exactly the same trigger as it was to make the tail. And so that really exploits the intelligence of the context. We don't say leg versus tail. We basically say, make whatever goes here, right? That's, that's basically the interpretation of the signal that we give is just build whatever normally goes here. So we're counting on the, the environment, the surrounding cells to know what they're doing. So, so that's, 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 part of, that's part of taking this, this agency seriously is we're not gonna, we're not gonna 3D print it because we're dealing with Legos. We're not dealing with Legos. We're dealing with an agential material that has certain competencies and memories and ability to do certain things. Uh, how, so that's the, can I that's, ask, how surprising was it that it grew back to like being the limb it was meant to be? Was that a surprise or was that something you expected? Well, it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny uh, question because on the one hand, whenever we see these results, I mean, it, being in the lab, you know, it's, this, this is the best job in the world, right? So I see things on a, I see things on a weekly basis that sort of blow my mind. And I see like seeing it with your own eyes is just amazing. Much like when, when we use that computer model to predict an ion channel drug that repaired the brain uh, after mutation, right? So, so you, you mutate notch and which is a critical neurogenesis gene. The brain is just, is just completely trashed. And then the computer model predicts this one channel that resets the electric pattern and fixes the whole brain. Like seeing that, even though, even though, you know, we, we made the model and we knew what, the, you know, it's it just amazing, right? So on the one hand, yeah, it's, it's, it's stunning every day to, to see this stuff is just profoundly um, uh, just amazing. On the other hand, you know, we did the experiment and we launched on a two year plus project because we thought it was going to work, right? We, you know, if you take your, if you take your idea seriously, there's some part of you that has to believe it's going to work. Otherwise, you're never going to do it. You're never going to put in all that time and money to do this. So um, having having seen how bioelectricity and, and other pathways act, all of these things, yeah, we do them because we kind of hope they're going to work. But but always, you know, seeing it with your own eyes is just, it's just amazing. Yeah, no, it just, when reading the paper, just knowing that they knew what to grow as was just mind baffling to me because I was like how they just knew and it's yeah 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 I the thing is the thing is you you have to this this um this this idea you 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 know we already know that that they know how to do this because look uh people people will often say that ooh, uh planaria are amazing because they regenerate a whole worm from a small piece right well half of the human population can regenerate an entire body from one cell 
I mean, that's incredible. Development is incredible. It's a, re, it's a set of regeneration um, processes, actually, I think. And the ability of one single cell to self-organize an entire body tells you that uh, the, the, the software that's able to run on this, on this hardware is incredibly competent. I mean, and, and, and look at, you know, human twins, right? Monozygotic twins. You can take an early mammalian embryo, cut it in half, and you don't get two half half embryos. You get two perfectly normal, complete bodies. We already know that this stuff is incredibly um, competent at reaching their anatomical goals. So I, I I was less I was less shocked. I mean, I'll tell you this. I, I was less shocked that they did it because I knew that these cells know how to do this. What I was shocked about was that, and this is this is important to know. And I don't know. I I think we didn't stress this in the paper enough because it it didn't it wasn't obvious to to, to readers. Uh, that cocktail that we showed that was our first attempt. That wasn't cocktail 78 out of 120 ones that we screened. That was no, there was no screen. There was no screen of anything. That was our, that was our first attempt. So I, you know, I don't believe in, in luck and buying lottery tickets. So that tells me that this is not the best possible cocktail, right? That means that, that means that if we actually, if we, if we actually like um, optimize, right, which combinations, what dosages, what timing, we didn't do any of that. This was the first thing that, that, that was the thing that shocked me because, uh, it, you know, the, you, you would think that you might have to really crank through a whole bunch of different things to get this to work. And it seems like we were kind of on the right track. But again, I, we have to uh, give all the credit to the cells. I don't think this worked because we lucked onto them, you know, all the information needed to do this. I don't think that's it at all. I think what we lucked onto was the fact that these cells are very good at learning from their environment and that even if we were even even remotely close to the signals that it takes to say build a leg here the cells did the rest you don't need to be right in the bullseye i think it's with these things so so that's that's what i think made that work but it was just yeah to me to me that 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 was the amazing part so i think tom knows all about like having to it never works first time having to redo it so i think he's very jealous um (laughs) well i mean to be to be clear we've had a million things uh yeah yeah. we've had that we've you know it took us years to get things right right i'm not saying this is this is how uh, this is how it always works for sure but uh but but sometimes it works like that yeah um yeah so maybe then move on to uh xenobots um did you can i ask is it did you invent xenobots is that fair to say or discover well, co-discover well uh whether things are invented or discovered <laughs> yeah. i mean so 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 my lab was the first lab uh that that where xenobots have come from we work very closely with josh bongard they they um josh's lab does the computational part so together you know we we, we do the biology they do the computer science so together from from his lab and my lab we 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 produced xenobots now whether things are invented or discovered is an interesting question. It's made, made even more interesting in these xenobots. People, you know, mathematicians argue about this all the time. When you have a theory, uh, some, some sort of theorem, did you invent it or did you discover it? Was it sort of floating out there somewhere for you to find or did you construct it the way you construct a bridge? Um, but there's been no ever, to- you've never seen it done before. Well, let's, no, let's, so, so, so let's be clear. Uh, these, be, being a xenobot, is something that these cells and in fact many other kinds of cells already do on their own that's really important we did not do anything really crazy to these cells that gave them a new capability that's that's really important because i think that that a a big um, portion of what's valuable about xenobots is learning what it is that cells are capable of outside of their normal environment 
So this is not a genetic engineering project. This is not a synthetic biology project. This is, we, we didn't add anything to these cells, but we subtracted something. What did we subtract? We subtracted the other cells from the embryo that normally uh, uh, constrain these cells to have a boring two-dimensional life as the outside layer of, of skin. So if you were to ask, if you were to ask, what do skin cells want to do? You might say, well, they want to make a two-dimensional layer that sits on the outside and keeps out the bacteria. That's not what they want to do. That's what they do when they've been bullied into it by the other cells of the embryo. They're basically receiving instructive interactions. So this is, this is an interesting kind of engineering. It's engineering by releasing constraints. What we did was we got rid of these other interactions and we asked a simple question, what do these cells want to do on their own? Now, now, of course, we modify, we, we, we can do some sculpting guided by the, by, the, uh, by the AI and so on, but the fundamental credit goes to the cells themselves. This is something that these cells already know how to do. And in fact, people for years have noticed that for, for, for decades, um, by developmental biologists that worked with, with, uh, with these uh, skin cells have known that they have cilia and that they can move around in the dish and so on. But I think people haven't realized what the what the import of this is and what the implications about this the use of this as a biorobotics platform the implications of this kind of plasticity the the use of these kinds of um models to make some new synthetic proto-organisms that don't have a long evolutionary history of behavior i mean there are a million things here that were never done before so that's that's all us but the but 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 the key has to be you know the, the key that has to be remembered is that these cells already know how to do many things besides being an embryo and being a, being a standard frog embryo. And that's really important. Yeah. Um, so like, just to summarize, basically they are cells that you just reprogrammed. They were skin cells and they basically are autonomous. They can, they don't have a function per se, but they have this pot biological plasticity. Uh, well, they have the, so, so, the possibility to function as, what you want them to well let's so so let's back up um the first thing is is reprogramming is an interesting thing we 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 did reprogram them because we gave them a new set of inputs for which meaning meaning we removed a bunch of things that they would normally be listening to and and so on so we gave them some new inputs that's a kind of reprogramming it's not the kind of reprogramming that cell biologists think of because they think of reprogramming as new genetics so so putting in synthetic um, biology circuits or genomic editing we didn't do any of that and and that's not the only kind of programming there is so a lot of biologists see that and they go that's not pro reprogramming this you know this is synthetic biology that's reprogramming and like well when you when you uh, operate your computer, do you reprogram it with a soldering iron? You could, but but you won't get very far. It's really hard. That's because because certain kinds of devices can be reprogrammed with inputs and stimuli, not necessarily with the changing the hardware. So it's a it's a it's you have to kind of shift your 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 thinking a little bit there. So that's the first thing. Now, as far as them not having a function, that's also a very deep uh, very deep concept because what's a function and who decides what a function is? That's right. Again, it's observer dependent. Here's what I can tell you. These cells, all we did was in the in the minimal uh, in the minimal implementation, all we did was take these skin cells off of a frog embryo and liberate them from the rest of the body and put them in a new environment. They could have done many things. They could have done nothing. They could have crawled away from each other. They could have made a flat monolayer like cell culture. They could have died as many cells do when they're taken out of context. They could have done many things. Instead, what they did was to come together overnight and form this little this little uh, uh, spherical structure that repurposes its cilia to uh, navigate freely 
And then they have all kinds of other behaviors. They do mazes, they cooperate uh, to um, make copies of themselves by pushing other loose cells into piles that also become xenobots. So this is like a self a kinematic self-replication. They do all these different things. And, and one of the most important kind of um, questions about it is, where did these structures and functions come from? Because, right? because when you normally, you look at an animal and you say, well, why is it this color? Why is it this shape? Why does it have these behaviors? What's the answer? The answer is always the same. Well, because for millions of years, the ancestors got selected and, the, you know, and if it wasn't quite right, it got died out. Now this is what you got. Well, guess what? There have never been any xenobots. There's never been selection to be a good xenobot. There's never been kinematic replication there, right? So, so, so what this is telling us is something very interesting, that the genome in, in evolving a frog, the genome, and, and we knew this actually from other, for, for, from other um, types of experiments that, that I can tell you about, we, we already knew this, the genome does not produce a solution to a specific environment that knows how to do one thing. It produces a problem-solving machine that is able to handle <clears throat> a wide range of novel environments uh, with, with, with different degrees of competency. And, uh, and it has all kinds of surprising capabilities that we don't know about by only studying the standard uh, kind of developmental sequence. And, and we really need to understand, I mean, the definition, here's a good definition of intelligence by William James. The definition of intelligence is the ability to reach the same goal by different means. So in, right, in order to do that, in order to, to investigate that, you have to perturb things and see how they handle it, right? You, have to, you can't just let it sort of roll down the same, uh, the same path. You have to see how they handle novelty. And what we're finding out is that with the exact same DNA, with the, with the normal Xenopus Levis genome, you can make things that don't look like a Xenopus uh, tadpole at all. And, and what else can cells, I mean, of course, you know, so this is something we're doing in our lab. I, is, some of this is not published yet, so I can't really talk about it, but, but stay tuned. We're, 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 there's a lot more coming that uh, this, is not, this has nothing to do with, with frogs or being an embryo or anything like that. It's, it's, a, it's a generic capability of cells to form coherent organisms under novel circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's bonkers, really. It's, it's, it's so fascinating, really, the whole um, area. Um, and yeah, these capabilities would have massive implications in terms of drug testings and wound healing. Um, but would there be dangers associated with these tissues or swarms having autonomy? I mean, look, uh, we'll think, a couple of things to say about that. Uh, first of all, frogs and, and, and other organisms shed skin cells into rivers all day, every day. So this is already, this is already, this isn't anything new. This is already out there. That's, that's the first thing. Second thing is just to kind of get into the details. These, these, these little guys only, only live in uh, very specific salt water conditions with specific range of temperatures. And they only live for about a week, right? So the, 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 the danger potential of these compared to what other people are doing, go, go to a virology department and take a look at what people are doing there or gene drives and, you know, releasing, uh, releasing genetically modified mosquitoes and whatnot. Uh, this, this technology is so far down on the list of things for you to worry about that it's, um, yeah, this is just, you know, this is just nothing compared to, compared to what's already going on. Mike, uh, Thank you for uh, thank you for your time. I think we coming uh, coming up to the full hour, so we don't want to keep you longer than necessary. But uh, okay, we have you. just one little question that we ask our every our guest, and it is, which uh, of the papers you have published you have the most found uh, memory about? Oh, oh man, uh, <laughs> boy, that's that's a hard uh, that's a hard question. Um, yeah, it's not easy for you. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's a that's a really hard question. I mean, one one of my favorites, I guess, uh, uh, goes back to um, uh, my paper on left right asymmetry with Cliff Tabin. So this was my my uh, my first paper in my graduate. I, I had written computer science papers before, but that was the first biology paper. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I, I with with Susan Ernst, I did some some sea urchin stuff, but but it was the first paper for my graduate school, and it was this um, it was it was this 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 cell paper identifying. Uh, some genes that uh, directed the 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 the, direct, the directed the laterality of the heart and the and the gut and the other in the other organs, and uh, I th th you know that that was kind of the first time that I really got the feeling that this was a viable uh, career choice for me because it it was it was you know it was it was I I thought it was really interesting finding it was a really interesting problem that uh, that wasn't known before is what what genes control this and. Uh, it, it, but pretty much, pretty much up until then, uh, and actually even after to some extent, every day of grad school, I thought this is the day I get kicked out. And uh, I just thought, you know, I, I had this um, expectation that basically I would at some point I get kicked out and then I go do do coding and I'd be a programmer and that'd be that. Uh, but uh, and in fact, I was told that, uh, you know, first day, first day of grad school, I was told that, oh but that that, 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 that that would happen. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was rough. But uh, but anyway, uh, I have I have real fond memories of that because I, I just that, that was the first time that it really clicked that like this is this was actually uh, working and that something interesting could come from from these things I was doing and that uh, something, you know, I could do something I could contribute in, a, in, in some way. So. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for this conversation. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and your research, where where would you direct them to towards? Um, the easiest thing to do is to go uh, to my website, uh, drmichael11.org, one word, drmichael11.org. I also have a Twitter uh, presence uh, at drmichael11. And everything is there. All the papers, the videos, the interviews, everything is there. Okay. Thanks very much for... Um fascinating uh discussion uh, i hope everyone learned something and thank you so much thanks for having me yeah so that, that was today's episode thanks thanks for joining us hope everyone enjoyed um our conversation with michael we learned a lot a lot about the bioelectricity and how we could even trump genetics something that is still controversial in my head we dipped a little bit into the philosophy of mind and how mike sees cognition. We also mentioned some of the regenerative medicine questions and uh, xenobots. If you have any feedback about the episode, you can drop us an email at skepticallyinclined@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, which is at skepticallyinclined and Twitter at skepticallyi. That was today's episode. I see you on the next one. Stay skeptical.